0: Hello everybody, and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach, and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past Ghostly Walks, based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory, this means i'll be searching through books web pages and videos as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories you can expect a new episode to be released every monday and thursday starting july 1st and ending mid august welcome to episode 11 alberta first things first i want to apologize for the delay in releasing this episode the microphone which i've been using was having some problems well working I've got it back up and running as quickly as possible, but sadly I was not quick enough and I'm recording Tuesday afternoon instead of on a Monday, so thank you for your patience and I hope this episode will be worth the extra wait. One thing I immediately noticed about Alberta ghost stories when beginning my research is just how many resources there were on the topic. I was able to sift through six different books and crawl through online articles and news reports and find a collection of stories that I really like. Alberta has such a wonderful mix of mountains and prairies, and as such, you'll hear how each of the stories tends to be shaded with either one or the other. I think we'll start today off in the mountains and work our way eastward for a little while. Our very first stop a lovely scenic destination whose name does not aesthetically reflect the gorgeous environment. Banff. In the a 14-year-old Sonia Fourche and her family were passing through Banff in the Rocky Mountains and checked into a hotel there for a few nights. We're not looking at a place like the Banff Springs Hotel, but rather a smaller, cozier abode than that. Sonia was given the key to room 6 by herself while her parents took up the space next door to their daughter as they always did when travelling they made some arrangements for a wake-up call and breakfast delivered to sonya's door not because they were spoiling their child but rather because a morning routine of medication and a good meal helped to keep sonya healthy with her diabetes it was arranged then that she would receive wake-up calls each morning at 8 o'clock and breakfast would follow shortly after at 8:05 as planned the first morning sonya was woken up right on time by the ringing of her hotel phone and within a few minutes, a delicious breakfast was waiting for her at the door. She administered her medication and ate her breakfast, then waited for her parents in the next room to wake up and start the morning. All day, the Forch family explored the national park and enjoyed the spectacular scenery, then retired back to their hotel for the night. The following morning, Sonia was again woken by the hotel room phone ringing her wake-up call. She picked it up to hear the same voice as the day before deliver the exact same message. She thanked the attendant and returned the phone to her receiver. She began to ready herself, feeling rather tired, perhaps from the exertion of exploring the park the previous day. After taking her insulin, she checked the door for breakfast. There had been no knock as before, but perhaps she had missed it. She opened the door to find nothing at the base or down the hall, it looked like breakfast was running a little behind. After a quick shower, Sonya checked the door again. Nothing. She waited and checked twice more before going to her parents' room and knocking on the door. Her mother answered, wearily asking what Sonya was doing up at this time. At this time? She was waiting for her breakfast, which the hotel had agreed to bring up. Her mother told her this was nonsense. It wasn't even five o'clock yet. Sonya stared. The clock in the room must have been wrong why would the hotel call her over three hours early? She went back to her room and checked her wristwatch. It only confirmed what hotel clocks had already told her. It was not yet 5 a.m. Sonya had been used to regular dosages of insulin for quite some time, so this unusual one was not a huge problem, and they all went back to sleep for a few more hours, intending to ask the front desk about the inappropriate prank in the morning. Once all three family members were up and about, they marched down to the front desk to complain about the very early wake-up call. While the desk clerk was certainly not expecting these accusations, he was able to furnish the forces with some answers, none of which the family liked. The desk wasn't staffed as early as 5am, and all room's phone bells were actually turned off during the night to prevent such disturbances. There was one possibility that came to his mind and it was only because Sonya had happened to be staying in room 6. A very dedicated staff member had died years earlier and was known to make nighttime calls to room 6, echoing messages from days earlier. Sonia's room simply happened to be the haunted one. He even produced a small book of documented and signed incidents from that room such as Sonia's. Would the Forch family mind adding theirs and signing it too? Apparently, they declined to participate in what they clearly took to be a very inappropriate prank. April 29th, 1903. A dog was heard to whimper with the strangest kind of howl, or at least it was according to a song by Stomp and Tom Connors called How the Mountain Came Down. Just east of the Crow's Nest Pass, the mining town of Frank, population 600, was settled neatly under the shadow of Turtle Mountain, whose peak looked down on Frank from over 7,000 feet above. At 4.10 a.m. on the morning of April 29, 1903, 70 million tons of the mountainside broke away, crumbling and falling, sending rocks tumbling down toward the town at speeds of over 120 kilometers per hour. The huge landslide crushed a portion of the town in just over a minute, and 76 people were killed. While Stompin' Tom was incorrect, The whole town of Frank was not buried in the ground, just a part of it was. It did end up being the deadliest landslide in North America. Somehow, the seventeen miners inside the mountain at the time of the slide miraculously survived. The mountain had sealed them inside like a tomb, but for twelve long hours they dug their way up and out through the coal deposits above them. There is now an interpretive center which stands at the base of Turtle Mountain and on the eastern outskirts of the modern-day town of Frank. It's a popular stopping place for people passing through, although out on the rocks can be quite uncomfortable. Throughout the whole area, there is an overwhelming feeling that you are being watched from all directions. For example, an archaeologist was working on the slide and came upon human remains. As he kept working to see what more could be uncovered, He had that same feeling of being observed. Despite this, he decided to camp on the spot as night fell so he could keep working. It was in the darkness that he looked up to see a menacing figure wielding a pickaxe, and then behind it more shadowy figures. While in the aftermath of the slide, people had done their best to excavate the rubble and recover what bodies they could, 64 people still lie trapped beneath the tons of rocks sprawled out across the valley. No wonder people out on the rocks feel uncomfortable. In addition, there is often a tremendous sense of tragic loss and immense sadness that comes from being out there. The rocks above Old Frank Road tend to be the most eerie, and while most of this is well known, people still do venture out into the area for recreation and exploration, A hiker climbed Turtle Mountain one afternoon, but discovered his route had been a little more ambitious than he had intended. Night fell as he reached the top, and with neither food nor equipment he decided to stay put at the top and await the morning sun. All he could do was stare down at the space where a bustling mountain town once stood and imagine the tragedy that had unfolded at his very feet. His skin prickled. Looking over his shoulder, he caught sight of an eerie figure standing on the rocks nearby. It was a woman, dressed in white, and he watched in horror as she opened her mouth and began wailing out over the valley below. It was the most unearthly sound, and it chilled him to the bone. Despite the darkness, the hiker clambered back down off the mountain. While there are certain similarities, this apparition is likely not the ghost of Monty Lewis. A well-known figure from mining town days. Monty Lewis was a prostitute who became quite wealthy in the town of Frank during the years that followed the slide. She owned lots of jewelry and was quite fond of flaunting her spending power. It was this that led to her untimely end. In 1908, she had a client who had fallen into some heavy debts. His name was Maxime Polipchuk, which he changed to Mike Phillips once he moved from the Ukraine to Canada, Phillips needed cash and needed it quick. He tried to convince Lewis to lend him some money, or at least pawn some of her jewelry, but she refused. At this, Phillips took the matter into his own hands. A local police officer found himself knocking on Monty Lewis's door a few days later. It wasn't for anything to do with Monty, although she hadn't been seen for some time. No, he was looking for another man who was connected to the brothels in town, and word was that Monty might know where to find him he arrived at her house and found it dark, but the door was open. The police officer let himself in and called out. With no response, he began searching the house. Inside the bedroom, he discovered a large lump under the bedsheets. He pulled back the covers, unveiling a sinister sight. What was left of Monty Lewis had been stuffed under the covers, Her throat was slit, and her head had been beaten and stabbed multiple times. She had gashes across her eyes, and she had wounds on her chest and arms. The official ruling was that she had died of a skull fracture during an altercation with an aggressor. Oh, and $200 was missing from her personal safe. Mike Phillips was known to have stayed at Monty Lewis's house for the three days leading up to the murder, he was known also to be in dire need of cash. There were many signs that pointed to him being the killer, and indeed he was the prime suspect who was brought in by the police. However, the result of the trial was that he was acquitted. The jury cited Monty's lifestyle as one that allowed for any number of men access to her house, giving anyone ample opportunity to kill her. To put it simply, wow. There may have been a bit of bias against Monty in the courtroom considering her profession. In any case, a few years later, Mike Phillips was once again wanted by the police. His wife had been murdered in their home, and there was no one else to suspect except Mike. He managed to evade the clutches of the law and was never heard from again. Monty, however, never rested after the unjust trial. Ever since, and even now. Citizens of Frank will see a woman walking down the streets of the town, her arms wrapped tightly around herself and doubled over, screaming out in pain. Her unearthly screams are heard throughout the valley, contending with those coming from the wraith on the rubble that covers the bodies of those that were buried in the deadly Frank slide. to use the next two stories to sandwich the province geographically, one from by the western border and one from out by the eastern border. However, the connecting theme between the two stories is that both are embedded as a central part of that area's folklore. You would be hard-pressed to find someone from those places who will not have heard at least some version of these tales. find ourselves just north of a small place called Spirit River. Nice. A very apt name for a podcast such as this. If you drive for about 20 to 25 minutes north along Highway 2 from Spirit River, you'll cross Peace River, and then right on the northern banks is Historic Dunvegan, a collection of old heritage buildings, each of which is haunted, most notably the Old Rectory, where the long-since-gone priest sits at his desk or stands at his window. The rectory is from 1889, and was an integral part of the St. Charles Catholic Mission, which made up a good chunk of historic Dunvegan. Alongside the rectory was the Hudson's Bay Company Factors House, which is the oldest building on the site and the second oldest fur trade building in Alberta which still stands on its original location. It dates all the way back to 1878. However, the best-known ghost in the area is not associated with any of the old buildings, but rather with the bridge that spans Peace River and looms over the unassuming little heritage center. Built in 1960, the Dunwagen Bridge is... colorful, to say the least. Its bright yellow beams stretch across a gorgeous valley, and it's supported by some brown towers which at first glance I thought had some red tinge to them. I rather like the look of it. But looks can be deceiving, as it's known internationally for being a very haunted bridge. In the late 1970s, two people were driving from Fairview in the north to Grand Prairie in the south, and as such had to take the bridge. It was snowing rather heavily, so they made their way slowly across the bridge, taking extra care to be alert. It was through this snow, out on the middle of the bridge, that they laid eyes on a woman walking up ahead along the bridge through the snow and definitely not dressed for winter weather. She seemed to be wearing some kind of a white cloak, pulled low over her brow, which obscured her face. The travelers pulled up alongside her to ask if she wanted a ride, but they were completely ignored. Not wanting to stop in the middle of the bridge, they continued along to the end of it, where there was space to pull to the side of the road. One of them stayed with the car, while the other trudged back through the snow to reconvene with the wandering woman. He made his way along the bridge, out very far over Peace River, to a point where he could even see the other side of the banks. There was no person in sight, and to his surprise, the only footprints on the bridge at all were his own. He made his way back to the car and his companion, where they surmised that she had never been there at all, other than perhaps a very long time ago. Months later, they returned to the bridge in good weather and with a third person, intending to catch another glimpse of this woman's ghost. They parked the car and walked along the bridge, but encountered no one save four passing vehicles. Feeling a tad disappointed, they decided to climb down to the river for a look around underneath the bridge before calling it a day and returning to Fairview. While they were down there, the hairs on their necks prickled, and instinctively all three visitors looked up the embankment to where a woman, dressed in a white cloak, was staring back at them. She lingered for a moment before disappearing. The travelers had seen what they had come to see, and quickly hustled back to their car and peeled away. "'Who was this woman?' Some say it's the ghost of a woman who froze to death while searching for her husband during a snowstorm, although there's no historical backing to this. It's more likely the ghost of a nun from the St. Charles Mission at the base of the bridge, for it's around there that she's often seen, picking berries, wandering the hills, or walking along the bridge itself, which is strange as the bridge wasn't built until 1960. Not much more can be found about her, I am sad to say but where the internet fails me, good fortune comes smiling through. I was leading a ghost walk through the streets of Victoria, British Columbia a few nights ago and I happened to have a family on my tour from Grand Prairie, Alberta. Since I was in the process of collecting stories for this episode, I asked the father while I was chatting with him if he knew any ghost stories from around his neck of the woods. He mentioned that there was a bridge a little north from Grand Prairie at Dunvegan, And you won't find anyone around those parts who doesn't know a thing or two about the ghost that walks along its sides. Local legend speaks of her as a nun who fell in love with the priest, possibly the same one still seen inside the old rectory. She became pregnant, and to avoid scandal, she ended up drowning in the river. Now, whether or not her death was of her own volition is something I do not know, but I bet you'll hear arguments for both sides if you ask any of the people in the area. One evening in 1908, Bob Toohey and Gus Day were serving as engineer and stoker for the Canadian Pacific Railroad and Medicine Hat. Their job was to move a locomotive from the gas city to Dunmore, a short way to the southeast. While they were zipping along, a train headlight suddenly appeared on the track ahead. Bob and Gus were frozen with fear, having had no time to register the instant apparition of the light ahead. There was no time to jump, They watched as the light sped toward them and the train's whistle screamed into the night air. They braced for impact. As suddenly as it had appeared, the oncoming train veered aside at the last possible moment and narrowly passed alongside Bob and Gus on non-existent tracks. Once they had passed it, it vanished. Days later, the two rattled railroaders met up in medicine hats downtown to discuss the traumatic incident after having some time to process it. Bob Toohey had been so shaken by the event that he had gone to see a fortune-teller. The mystic told him that although his health was just fine, he would be dead within a month. As such, Bob had requested a transfer of duties to the much calmer and slower-moving rail yards, just to be safe. He would be replaced by James Nicholson, who took up the regular shift with Gus Day. That night, Gus and James were on the same route from Medicine Hat to Dunmore. Once again, the light appeared in front of them on the track ahead. Gus's blood drained from his face as the whistle began to shriek into the night, for the second time the mysterious oncoming train veered aside, passing harmlessly by their engine on tracks that simply did not exist. Gus even saw the passengers on board the passing cars through their windows before it disappeared again. He explained the previous encounter with the strange train to James, who wouldn't have believed it had he not also just seen it with his own eyes. When Gus Day received his next orders, he was relieved to learn that, like Bob Toohey, he had been placed in the rail yard in Medicine Hat, although Bob was now off and working another line. With Bob and Gus out of the picture, their regular shift was handed over to James Nicholson again, but now joined by a fourth man, Harry Thompson. When those two stepped on board the locomotive, their job was slightly different. Instead of running southeast to Dunmore, they were to take the slightly less familiar track southwest instead. Despite this change in route, for a third time the headlamp of an approaching train was seen by the engine workers, James, with nerves of steel, understood it to be the mysterious phantom train that he and Gus had encountered before, and told Harry not to mind it, that it would soon somehow pass straight by. Harry, who had never experienced this terrifying image, ignored this advice and wasted no time in jumping out of the engine and into the bushes alongside the track. Seconds later, the two very real trains collided, and Harry, watching from the ground nearby, ended up being the only crew member to survive. While his train had just been an engine with nothing behind, the same could not be said for the other. It had been the 514 train from Lethbridge to Medicine Hat, lined with passenger cars behind. Seven of those passengers were killed in the accident, along with the 514's engineer, an unfortunate man whose name we already know. Bob Tui. So far in this series, I think the only capital cities we have not covered are Fredericton and Iqaluit. I don't intend to include Edmonton in that list. That would be to ignore the rich base of ghostly folklore that Edmonton has to offer. I was surprised at just how much I was able to find. Three stories from the Greater Edmonton area interested me in particular, and are up next on our list. For Edmonton's oldest brick school, the hauntings began right away. For anyone who knows any ghost stories about Alberta's capital city, you've probably already deduced that we're about to peer into the old McKay Avenue School, now serving as archives and a museum for the Edmonton School District. This creepy old building has it all. Locked doors opening themselves up, the old boilers turning off and on autonomously, pictures falling from walls, furniture scraping across empty rooms, and bathroom taps found running, just to mention a few of the strange things that take place within its walls. People who have worked at the school in the past, or still do in the archives, come out with a thorough education on paranormal activity and a diploma in getting freaked out, Former principal George Sherman in the 1960s would hear moaning sounds coming from the attic, something I can only imagine he would have to wrestle with himself on whether to tell his staff. Former secretary Ina Schneider said things would brush past her all the time in her office, and she would only enter parts of the school basement when accompanied by a colleague. Speaking of colleagues in the basement, John McCormick had some rough encounters down there himself. He was convinced that something kept trying to push him off his stepladder while he was painting the basement walls. Considering the hazard this posed to his workplace safety, I fully agree with his refusal to work in the basement at all after that. The school seems to be filled with strange and unsettling events. I can only imagine the rumors that spread amongst the students. How were they ever to find out exactly what was causing all this unrest? Enter Ron Hlady. Ron Hlady worked in the building for many years and quickly learned all about the hauntings at McKay Avenue School firsthand. One of the quirkier encounters he had was when he and a colleague were preparing for a presentation to be held in the building. They closed the whole place that afternoon and began setting up rows of chairs. Then they drew the blinds, locked the doors, and headed home for the evening. The next morning, Ron and his co-worker arrived at the school long before anyone else from the presentation was to show up. What they found inside startled them. The chairs had been scattered about the floor and the blinds were all up or even ripped off the windows in some places. The room was in a complete state of violent disarray, and to make matters worse, the doors had all been locked when they had arrived and there was no sign of a break-in. It had been an inside job, so to speak. To get to the bottom of all this, Ron decided to try something a little unorthodox compared to his normal job description. He brought in a Ouija board. It was through the use of this that Ron learned of a ghost named Peter who was inside McKay Avenue School. Peter reported that there was at least another half dozen ghosts in the building as well, but wouldn't say much about them. What Peter would say is how he had come to be stuck inside there. He had been a worker in 1912 who had fallen off of the roof and onto the hard, frozen ground. With the dirt so chilled and packed, there was no place to bury him except for under the basement floorboards, and so there he was put. When I read about this, I was very confused as to why this decision wasn't left up to, you know, his family or an undertaker. I would assume they would have had him placed in a cemetery rather than beneath a schoolroom floor. On second thought, what if that was the decision of a family member or undertaker? I don't want to think about that. Alas, this is all we have to go on, but it would go as far as to explain the activity throughout the school, especially in the basement. One small note to tack on to this story which Ron pointed out, and which was included in John Robert Colombo's True Canadian Ghost Stories, Ron had been the first person so drawn to the activity inside the building that he went out of his way to delve into its mysteries. There was something about the spirits in that place that had called out to him. Ron just so happened upon a curious link that may have something to do with Ron's attachment to the ghosts inside McKay Avenue School. The building was opened on January 3rd, 1882. Peter claimed to have died on January 3rd, 1912. Lastly, Ron was born in the year 1951 on the date of, you'll be shocked to hear, I know, January the 3rd. Curious, isn't it? didn't already know, the sport of ice hockey has a very strong historical connection with ghosts and the paranormal. Just look at names of professional teams in the United States. The New Jersey Devils of the NHL. The Lehigh Valley Phantoms of the AHL. All right, you got me there. There isn't really much of a link between ghosts and hockey. A Google search of hockey ghost basically yields statistical profiles of Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Shane Goss to spare, whose nickname is, of course, The Ghost. With that being said, there are a handful of arenas in Alberta that have a haunted history. Nothing necessarily sinister, like Warren Zevon's lyric Blood on the Ice ran down through the years, but something very unsettling, and something very permanent. In 1990, construction began on the NMAC Centrium Arena in Red Deer. During work on the roof, a construction worker fell to his death in the southwest corner of the rink. That's coincidentally where arena employees will have constant lighting and technical issues, most famously when all the arena lights in the area turned on during a tragically hip concert. That's right, on this Canadian Ghost Story podcast, we finally hit the most Canadian Ghost Story possible. A haunted, tragically hip concert in the Red Deer hockey rink. Looks like the hectic action was inside, not outside, and with a very different meaning for phantom power. In addition to lighting issues, staff and spectators often see a man dressed in overalls standing in the southwest corner who watches the on ice action for a moment, then vanishes. Arena ghosts aren't reserved for some of the bigger rinks in the province either. Yes, the NMAX Centrium Arena hosts the WHL Red Deer Rebels, whose alumni include names like Jake DeBrusque, Devin Dubnik, Martin Erat, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Dion Phaneuf, Cam Ward, and many others, but smaller Alberta rinks, such as the old Wild Rose Arena in Camrose, had their ghosts too. Before it was torn down, the Wild Rose Arena, home of the Camrose Kodiaks, didn't have the name power of the Red Deer Rebels Arena, it saw the junior careers of just a few NHL players, notably Mike, not Martin, Brodeur, Dylan Olson, Joe Colborne, Mason Raymond, and Nick Holden. Not exactly marquee names, but the ghosts in the Wild Rose Arena more than make up for the lack of big hockey names. In fact, when it was shut down in 2007 after 80 years of operation, it was the third oldest arena in Canada, its closure attracted global TV reporter Dean Millard, who intended to interview the staff about the history of the old rink. He very quickly discovered that the employees really only wanted to talk about the ghosts. In an interview with Jeff Hogland and Alan King, longtime staff at the Wild Rose Arena, Millard learned about the strange experiences that occurred throughout the building on a daily basis. Staff would see faces in the reflection of the glass, feel eerie presences on the stairway to the basement, hear people walking behind them, catch shadows moving in the corners of their eyes, and hear unexplained noises while sitting alone in their offices. At night, Jeff or Alan, whoever was on closing duty that night, would close up all the penalty box and players' bench doors. Moments later, they would all be open again. Perhaps most unsettling would be the times when one of them would be alone in the rink, working in their office around midnight after a game, doing up timesheets, and the office door, which they would have locked, would unlock itself and slowly swing open, revealing a dark hallway. In addition to the late-night ghosts, a couple would often be seen sitting above the north net who would be gone in a flash. A young boy would be seen and heard running around behind the players' benches, Zamboni drivers would frequently see another young boy peeking over the boards in the northeast corner, but for some reason only on Friday nights, Saturday mornings, or Saturday nights. I guess during the week he was attending phantom classes at the McKay Avenue School in nearby Edmonton. He would have dark hair, a very pale face, and bright green eyes. Not red eyes, thankfully. While Camrose's historic arena was demolished a decade ago, its legacy continues to live on with more memories than you can fill a net with, as Global TV put it. Before concluding the interview with Dean Millard, employees Jeff and Alan shared one more detail about a former staff member. She was set to work at the arena alone overnight, which was not something she had done before. When staff arrived at the rink in the morning, they found every single light in the arena lit up. Walking through the deserted rooms, they called out greetings but received no answer. When they unlocked the office door, they discovered the employee cowering under the table, a large hammer gripped tightly by her white knuckles. They never found out exactly what happened to the poor soul who braved the night in the Wild Rose Arena by herself. The only words they could get out of her were, I quit. And true to her word, that's exactly what she did that very day. Darlene Briere was the program coordinator for the Fort Saskatchewan Museum outside of Edmonton. In 2000, she hosted a Fright Night and Haunted House for the local kids just before Halloween anyone between the ages of 8 and 12 were welcome to participate in some spooky activities and stay overnight in the old fort. Darlene even had a couple of friends join in, pretending to be a boogeyman in the bushes or a fortune teller in the fort. It turned out to be a lot of fun. As the night was drawing to a close, all the kids put on their pajamas and took out flashlights. Darlene was going to lead them through a security check of the premises Really, it was just an excuse for the kids to run around playing with flashlights and jumping out at each other. Darlene took some pictures to print off overnight and give as part of take-home goodie bags in the morning. Once the kids were all asleep, Darlene and a friend set to work downloading and printing the pictures they'd taken. As they were working on the photo files, the bathroom across the hallway lit up with a huge flash. Cautiously, they both investigated but found absolutely no reason for it to have done that. What they did notice, however, was that the air had become quite cold and their hair began to stand on end. Something, it felt like, was down there with them. They tried to ignore it and went back to sifting through the pictures on the computer. While doing this, they spotted in one of the photos amongst the kids running around There was a woman who had not been present while the photo was being taken. She was standing in their midst, just standing, looking back at the camera. This, along with the strange bathroom light, was too much for Darlene's friend, who decided to step away and go check on the kids. When she came back, she was as pale as a ghost. There's something up there, she told Darlene. They both went up to check. As they entered into the room where the girls were sleeping, a wave of ice-cold air hit them, almost going through them at the door. The blinds across the room covering the windows began to move on their own, jingling back and forth softly as if there was someone playing with them. What was there to do? To wake up the girls would only incite chaos. What were they going to say? Sorry, girls, but there may have been a ghost or ghosts lurking over you while you were sleeping? Overall, while Darlene and her friend were frightened, there was no overarching sense of danger, so they decided to let the girl sleep through it. The kids never knew about what had gone on while they lay unconscious in their sleeping bags on the fort floor, and they all left in high spirits the next morning with their goodie bags in hand and ready to come back the next year. Needless to say, Darlene neglected to hand out copies of the photo with the strange woman in it. No, she kept that one for herself, and she looked over it time and time again, Who was this curious woman? Eventually, Darlene made the connection between the woman in her photograph and a woman in a photograph from the Fort Archives, Florence Lissandro. The images matched exactly. If you don't know who Florence Lissandro was... Our friends at the Haunted Walk in Ontario cover her in episode 4 of their podcast Haunted Talks, but I'll give a quick rundown of her history here as well. It's too good of a story not to share, and in 2003 it was even turned into an opera by Canadian composer John Astacio. In the early days of the 20th century, bootlegging through the Crow's Nest Pass in the Rocky Mountains was somewhat a common endeavor. The 22-year-old Florence was from Italy, but she ended up falling in with a crowd who participated heavily in running alcohol through the mountains. The leader of the group was Emilio Picariello, and while Florence had married a man who worked for him, she had truly fallen in love with Picariello's son, Stephen. By the time Florence had well established herself with these folks, news reached them that Stephen Picariello had been shot and killed by a member of the Alberta police. Florence and Emilio set off for revenge, not knowing that Steve had only been shot in the hand and was still very much alive. The two assailants found the officer responsible and shot him dead in front of his family. However, no one saw which of the two of them had fired the gun. Florence readily confessed. The idea was that even if Florence had really fired the gun, No one hanged women for stuff like that, so both of them would get off relatively unscathed. Unfortunately for them, the law did not behave according to their predictions, and both were hanged in Fort Saskatchewan. In fact, their lives were snapped away from them at the ends of ropes, which just so happened to dangle down right at the spot where Darlene snapped her photograph of children running around with flashlights, and Florence staring back at her from among them. We began our episode today with a hotel, and I would like to finish off with two more stories in a very similar fashion. However, the two places we'll be looking at couldn't be more different from one another. You'll see exactly what I mean when all is said and done. What I mentioned in the recent Northwest Territories episode about hotels rings true for all around Canada. Hotels are going to typically be very haunted places due to the number of people who happen to die in them. The Grand Edifice, that is the Banff Springs Hotel, is one of the most famous haunted hotels in Canada, if not the world, and is home to multiple spirits. For the sake of keeping this podcast on track, here are but three stories that relate to its haunted halls. During the late 1920s, a couple was getting married at the hotel, and why not? What a beautiful place to hold the ceremony. Sadly, just before the wedding was set to take place, the bride, all decked out in her elaborate dress, was descending the curved staircase lined by candles when part of her dress caught fire by passing through one of the flames. It was a small fire, and easily dealt with had she not panicked at the sight of it. Startled as she was, she lost her balance and fell down the remaining stairs to her death. What remains of her today are simply images, ones seen by hundreds of people over the years, of a veiled woman on the stairs, and of a woman in a wedding dress dancing in the ballroom by herself, perhaps yearning for her fiancé who never became her husband. A very different spirit commonly encountered at the Banff Springs Hotel is that of its former head bellman, Sam Macaulay. The old Scotsman was appointed to the head bellman position in the 1960s and held the post until his death in 1975. He's a very helpful spirit, once bringing luggage to a room for some guests. They forgot to tip him and tried to remedy this by passing on some money in an envelope to the first bellman they saw on the next morning, but discovered that not only was there no bellman who fit the description of the one who had helped them, but the uniform that their kind helper had been wearing had not been in use at the hotel for several years. One of the later bellmen was preoccupied by a task when two elderly women rang for him at the lobby desk. They said their key wasn't working and they couldn't get into their room. The bellman responded that he would be up to assist them in five minutes, once he had finished helping another guest. True enough, within a few minutes he had gone up to their hotel room but to find the door working just fine and the woman at ease inside their room. No need to help, they said. An elderly bellman in a plaid jacket had come by right away to assist them. Sam strikes again. In addition to haunting his old office, Sam's presence is also felt on the 6th, 7th, and ninth floors. Not on the 8th for some reason, but there is something else up on the eighth floor that dwarfs any old bellman still helping from beyond the grave. While many guests throughout the Bamp Springs Hotel have reported being pushed off their beds or having pillows yanked from under their heads while sleeping, it all pales in comparison to what would go on in room 873. Years ago, an entire family of three was murdered inside that room, but of course the staff wouldn't tell this to anyone who checked in, Those guests would often be woken up by horrible screaming coming from within their room. They would fly out of bed and throw on the lights to discover bloody handprints covering the mirrors. This would happen so frequently that the hotel gave up trying to put people in there, and to be extra safe, they removed the door and sealed off the room completely. Feel free to go and find it yourself. All the indicators are there as plain as day. Each floor has a room 73 on it in that same spot except for the eighth floor. Lights in the hallways are only placed above doors, but where 873 should be there is a light but no door. Tapping along the wallpaper produces a hollow sound when tried where the door would be, and right beneath it you'll find that there are baseboards that have been cut and pasted at the exact width of the standard hotel door. Regarding the murders themselves, Once again, we find local lore has stepped in to fill some of the gaps in documented knowledge. One of the more popular theories is that the father went mad and killed both his wife and daughter before claiming his own life. Does that sound familiar? It should. Along with the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, the Banff Springs Hotel served as inspiration for a guest who heard its stories and begun taking notes, collecting all the creepy things he could, spinning them out into a full-fledged narrative of his own fictional mountain resort. Yes, much of what you'll find in the Bamp Springs Hotel is reflected profoundly in author Stephen King's novel The Shining. We're going to move from Alberta's most famous resort to one that, well, let's just say it takes a page from the Disneyland's Tower of Terror ride, one of my favorite rides I've been on, by the way. Anyway, in order to dive into that, we have to first go over some very important announcements. First I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor have they been collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from the following books. Great Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published in 2018 by Touchwood Editions and available online at Amazon and Chapters Indigo, or in stores pretty much wherever you can find new books. True Canadian Ghost Stories by John Robert Colombo, published in 2003 by Prospero Books and available online at Amazon and Dundurn.com. Ghost Stories of the Rocky Mountains by Barbara Smith, published in 1999 by Barbara Smith and Lone Pine Publishing, and available online at Amazon and Chapters Indigo. Haunted Alberta, 62 True Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published in 2009 by Lone Pine Publishing, and available online at Amazon, Dundurn.com, and Chapters Indigo. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the Podcasts tab and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing... I used a Ouija board once, it told me to look up this podcast. Considering how much I'm enjoying this series, I'll never doubt the power of ghosts again. Or something like that. The music for this podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I'm one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. This is a good opportunity to thank a few listeners. Thank you very much to Jen for her kind Facebook comments about our show. It's nice to hear that you're enjoying it. Also, thank you to Bill for his email saying how much he's liking it, too. Glad to hear you're signing up for a tour next time you're in town, Bill. Make sure to let us know when you come on the tour. Bill also was very kind to ask about the music used for this podcast, and if there is a separate site where I upload music of my own such as this. I'm sorry to report that I do not have such a site, but I'm glad you think the music fits well with this. When planning how I was going to structure this podcast, I had to consider how I was going to break up the stories. Music seemed to be the best option, but with rather tight budgets for this project, I was not able to purchase the rights to anything, and I wasn't crazy about any of the stuff out in the public domain. Instead, I sat down at a piano room in the University of Victoria and recorded the files you hear with this podcast. Much of it is entirely improvisatory. In fact, what you can hear right now in the background was just made up as I went along, so I wouldn't be able to replicate it if I tried. The rest of the interludes are actually common melodies but put in a minor key, or in a few cases, Lydian dominant mode, which I find works well for spookiness. Listen closely. You might catch a pair of brown eyes by the Pogues, Shenandoah, and Safe Upon the Shore by Great Big Sea, amongst other tunes. The intro and outro music for each episode is also just parts of the choral piece Blessed Be the God and Father by Samuel Sebastian Wesley, but in a minor key. Anyway, thank you, Bill, for asking about the music, and I hope this was able to answer any questions any listeners might have had about it. Our next episode would be released on Thursday August 8th and will take us up north to the Yukon for our last stop in the territories, however due to the technical issues I was having prior to this episode, I will no longer be able to have the episode finished before I leave for Colorado for a few nights tomorrow. I'm anticipating the Yukon episode to be up on Saturday, and the BC episode ready by the regular Monday release date. Considering the history of the Yukon and feverish hunts for gold up in the mountains, you can bet that this next episode will have a distinctly sourdough feel to it. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30am and 2.00pm. Everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different route at 7.30pm for each night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30pm. All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street outside the Visitors Information Center. The only exception is our Chinatown Daytime History Walk which starts at 1689 Government Street outside the Starbucks. We would certainly love to see you out on one of our tours. These announcements have run long enough, I think. It's time for our final Alberta story. I mentioned it was very different than the one in Banff. Over there, you'll find the building is filled with ghosts. But what happens when the building itself ends up being the spectre? In the late 1970s, Fred and Andrea were a couple traveling east through the Rocky Mountains to their home in Edmonton. Night fell after the day-long trip which originated in Vancouver. Originally they were hoping to make the journey in one go, but as they passed through the trickiest parts of the route into Alberta, they decided to stop for the night at the nearest possible resting place. As they drove through the darkness, they spotted a motel sign illuminated in the distance. It was a run-down looking place, but they were tired and decided to pull into the parking lot anyway. As they got out of their car, they noticed how quiet everything was. There were no cars around, except for theirs, and all the lights seemed to be off except for the check-in office. It would have to do. The office was closed, but unlocked, and the couple let themselves in. To their surprise, no one was at the desk. There was simply a handwritten note on the counter instructing them to leave the nightly fee of eight dollars and grab a room key. Well, they placed their coins in the empty dish and picked up the key for unit twelve. After grabbing their luggage from the car, they walked over to their quarters. As they passed the rows of motel rooms, they noticed that each door was ajar and there was simply darkness within, they felt very uneasy as they entered into their unit. It seemed they were the only guests in the whole motel. Through the window, Fred could see another row of motel rooms in behind their block. All of those were vacant as well. To add to the uneasiness they felt, neither Fred nor Andrea could shake the feeling that they were being watched. They began to get ready for bed, trying to ignore these strange feelings in favor of a few hours' rest but the closer they got to slipping into the covers, the worse they began to feel. Their imaginations started flashing with pictures and sensations all of impending disaster, like something very, very bad would happen to them if they dared fall asleep in that space. Along with this, the feeling of being watched became even stronger. That was too much for the weary couple, They ran out of the room, returned their key to the office, collected their money, and drove on until they found another motel. This next one was perfectly ordinary, and they spent the remaining night hours there before continuing home to Edmonton. A few days later, they told their story to a friend who knew the highway well, and they described to him the exact location. He confessed he had never noticed the strange motel before, but promised to keep an eye out for it the next time he drove by. Later that week, their friend was driving through the very same stretch where they had visited that sinister inn, but as he looked out around the road, all he saw were empty fields. Not satisfied and truly believing that something very serious had rattled his friends, he asked a Mountie in the area who he knew very well about that mysterious motel. The Mountie responded quite quickly, as if he had been asked this question many times before. There was no motel around those parts, although one fitting the description once existed in that exact spot. What do you mean, once existed? Fred and Andrea's friend asked the Mountie. Well, it meant that it didn't exist anymore. It had been torn down several years before.